0: Crime so Salad listeners, welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad. I'm Ashley.
1: And I'm Ricky.
0: And we're here with another...
1: True Crime Story.
0: True Crime Story. This one's going to blow your socks off.
1: I'm not wearing socks. So Me what either.
0: Well, that's exactly why we don't have socks on.
1: You just feel a little wind on your feet? <laughs>
0: So before we jump into this week's episode, we have two patrons that we would love to shout out. This week we have...
1: I would love to say...
0: I would love to say...
1: Kevin and Andrea.
0: Thank you guys so much for your support. We really appreciate it. We do. From the bottom of our hearts. But let's not waste any more time. Let's jump into this week's episode. It's now been 15 years since a husband and wife were left for dead in their own garage in a small, friendly town. Nothing much was left behind that gave direct clues to the reasoning of the brutal murder of Ronald and Christine Jabbily. Well, there was one thing that caught the investigators' attention. It was a cryptic message, written with blood, which was thought by investigators to be left behind by Christine Jabbily in the moments before her death. Now, this message seemed to have spelled out letters, possibly a name, but the message was unclear. If it were only as easy to just figure out what was written in blood, investigators may be one step in the right direction. It's so sad to think that Christine was writing something, hoping it would give police answers, but instead, this case has gone colder and colder as time goes on. And here we are, still trying to figure out what this message says. With an attempt to write out a clue, you would think that the couple knew the name of this murderer, who didn't leave behind any murder weapons or any DNA evidence at the scene of the crime. And even some of the blood at the scene was wiped up. Other than this message, investigators were left with almost nothing to go on but a pair of slippers, a half-eaten cookie and a few letters scrawled in blood. The mystery surrounding this case for years has been who did this and why? A couple named Ronald and Christine Jabbily were married for 39 years. They had three children together, Ron Jr., Nicole, and Ryan. They lived in a quiet, friendly neighborhood in the town of New Baltimore, Michigan. They, along with their three children, worked together at their thriving family business, a butcher shop called RJ Meats located in the Eastern Market in Detroit. The father, Ron, was a hard worker, meticulously neat and tidy, and a car enthusiast. Christine was adventurous and had a strong appreciation for beauty and also loved things tidy. She was a doting wife and a loving mother who was known as the glue that held the family together. The Jabalese were both 58 at the time and they were planning an exciting trip, a trip to Ireland, and were excited to keep exploring their lives together. But tragically, the Jabalese never were able to take that trip. It was on the night of October 6th, 2006, when Ronald and Christine Jabbily were brutally murdered. Both were severely beaten and stabbed 12 times each and left for dead in the garage of their new Baltimore home. Their bodies were discovered at 9.30 a.m. when Ryan, their son, noticed his punctual and reliable father hadn't come into work and was unable to be reached. As the morning went on, Ryan began to fear something was wrong when he still couldn't get a hold of either of his parents. This was very out of character for his parents. He asked his girlfriend, Rosie Kroll, to go to the house and check on them since she lived nearby. Nothing could have prepared Rosie for the horrors she saw that morning.
1: When you opened it,
0: what did you see, if anything?
1: Were they alive? No. (laughs) Where were they?
0: On the ground. (laughs) Rosie, hysterical and shaken, called her boyfriend Ryan to tell him what she found. His parents, lifeless and bloody, lying mutilated on the floor of their garage. Ryan, horrified and panicked, immediately called 911 for 9-1-1 help. 911 call to Michigan State Police. My
1: parents weren't available and no one answering answer their phones. So I called my girlfriend who lives in Clinton Township to go over to my parents' house. He said that my parents are in the garage. There's one that's right away in the sand. My kids are laying in the garage. I love what is the trash. 53 Washing Street. History. What city is that? It's in your path together. Okay, hold on. Don't touch your name. Linda McGrudden. Ryan, give me your cell phone number in case I lose you.
0: This tragic day started just like any other ordinary workday. It was business as usual at the family butcher shop RJ Meads. All three children, Nicole, Ryan, and Ron Jr. were at the shop, not having any inclination of the gruesome events that happened the night before. To make a point, there were notable differences between Ryan and Ron Jr.'s reactions to both his father not showing up for work and in their behavior once they knew their parents were dead. Ryan was concerned and then later devastated after he learned his parents had been killed. He immediately left work and drove to his parents' house in such a frenzy that he drove through the caution tape surrounding the yard, ignoring any barriers that stood between him and his slaughtered parents. Ryan explains what that experience was like for him in his own words. Quote, I was going about 120 miles an hour. I just drove right through the tape line across the neighbor's lawn until I had a bum rush of four or five police and fire department officials stop the truck in its tracks. And then I'm looking at my mom behind the Jeep and I'm looking at my dad at the bottom of the steps. And at that point, I just broke down, got on my knees and they carried me to the front of the house." End quote. And as for Ron Jr. when he got the terrible news, which was at the same time as Ryan, he decided he should stay and run the store while his brother ran to check on their parents. After discovering his parents' past, Ryan called Ron Jr. to break the news to him. Ron Jr., confused, questioned what he had just heard. What do you mean, mom and dad have passed? Ryan explained that someone had killed them. Ron Jr. was silent. Ryan later stated in an interview, while recounting this conversation, he said, quote, I don't think he knew how to react the same way I didn't react, End quote. But from the outside looking in, you can clearly understand these were two very different reactions, even though everyone handles trauma differently. But it's a pretty severe thing that just had happened. Horrible. It's sad. Wouldn't you be angry that a killer is running loose and his parents are gone, brutally murdered? Just any emotion at all. Yo, I found my favorite shoes. Rothy's are now in my possession. I now have the point and the flat. People Magazine named The Point the best flat for their first ever Style Awards 2021. The Point and the flat from Rothy's may be the usual suspects that you've heard of, but they also make insanely comfortable sneakers, lopers, ankle boots, and more. The best part is, everything Rothy's makes is better for the planet. They've repurposed millions of water bottles into their signature thread that goes into every single one of their products. I cannot stress enough how much I love my Rothy's. I have had my Rothy's for over two years and they look the same as when I first bought them, even after throwing them in the wash and letting them air dry. As a mother of two, I find myself wearing these shoes everywhere I go, to the grocery store, driving around as a mama taxicab service for my older son, or even when I dress up for an occasion. Solve the case of your next favorite spring shoe with Rothy's. Plus, get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com slash crimesalad. Yeah, that's $20 off at rothys.com slash salad. Most match three games are missing something. That kind of compelling, TV-worthy story that keeps you on the edge of your seat match 3 games can be a lot of fun but it seems like most of them are the same the themes and characters change but overall it's the same boring format until now switchcraft is a brand new take on match 3 game as you play you'll unlock pieces of a beautiful magical and gripping graphic novel switchcraft is a mobile game with a unique blend of tv worthy writing choose your own adventure style narrative and thousands of magical match 3 levels this game stands out above the rest i love that it's fun, creative, and addictive with beautiful art and a detailed storyline. You'll want to keep playing just to see what happens next. The story features over 85 characters from a variety of cultural backgrounds as well as disabled and LGBTQ characters. In Switchcraft, you'll take on the role of a witch at Pendle Hill, the world's top academy of witchcraft. Play your way through hundreds of enchanting match three levels, revealing a dark and winding mystery story. Download Switchcraft for free and unlock the magical mystery.
1: Detective Ken Stevens was the first detective to arrive on the scene. When he saw the home of the Jabileys, he noticed it was surrounded by a lot of tall trees and bushes, making it a perfect target for a home invasion. But that theory was quickly thrown out the window, once the police informed him that Ron Sr. was found with his wallet still on him, and Christine was still wearing all of her jewelry. In addition, her purse, along with the rest of the house, with the exception of the garage, remained untouched, which convinced the crime scene investigators on the scene to the same conclusion. This was not a robbery gone wrong. The Jabalese garage was a bloodied nightmare. Drops of blood topped with frost from the night before were found scattered at the top of the driveway outside the garage, along with scuff marks on the pavement and drag marks in the blood. Police on the scene believe that the altercation between Ron and his killer started at or near that spot on the driveway before the killer dragged Ron back into the garage. Christine and Ron were found lying apart from each other on the floor. Both were found with defensive wounds from a knife attack on their hands, indicating that they both attempted to fight off their attacker. The attack on the Jabalese was unfathomably savage. They both had been severely beaten and bludgeoned in the head between seven and nine times. Each were stabbed at least a dozen times, and their throats were slashed. This wasn't a single stab or small attack, as if an intruder got caught. This was obsessive. This was personal. Detectives believe a scene like this, what they call overkill, indicates a great deal of personalized, build-up anger, and it was highly likely that Ron and Christine knew their killer well. Despite the killer's almost perfect attempts to cover up the tracks, investigators on the scene found what they believed to be an important clue, a message written in blood under the Jeep, only feet away from Christine's dead body. Officials believe that it was an attempt by one of the victims to identify their killer in the moments before they passed. Unfortunately, most of the message was wiped away as the killer mopped up evidence at the crime scene. Some letters did remain, but investigators ultimately reached the conclusion that the message was undecipherable. Hordes of internet sleuths on message boards also did their best to decode it and came up with their own theories. Some people think the letters could have spelled out Nicole, implying their daughter killed them, despite detectives already clearing her as a suspect. Some of the others invested in the case online thought that the letters told a different story, they believed that the letter spelled out JJ, which stood for Jabili Jr., implicating their eldest son, Ron Jr. Now, there is some talk that this could be the name of a brother-in-law of Ron Jabili, someone who worked at the family's meat business, and was actually the first witness to take stand while at court, testifying that Ron wasn't acting strangely that day, or that he didn't notice any family conflict while working at the Jabili's meat market. His name is Richard Zeiler. Now, if you give the bloody written message another look, can you make out his name? It's spelled S C Y L L E R. There's a letter that looks like an S at the top of the backwards Z. However, we didn't find that any investigators were really looking into Richard as a suspect at all. And again, we're not the brains of this idea either. Because this was actually something that was suggested on a Reddit post that we came across. Which gives a valid point, though.
0: Gaps in the diet shouldn't be ignored. Over 97% of women aged 19 to 50 are not getting enough vitamin D from their diet, and 95% are not getting the recommended daily intake of key omega-3s. Rituals, essential for women, 18 plus multivitamin, was formulated by exhaustive research to help fill nutrient gaps in the diets of women ages 18 plus. It is formulated with nutrients to help support brain health, bone health, blood health, and provide antioxidant support. But Ritual didn't stop there. They invested in a gold standard university-led clinical trial to prove the impact of Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin. The results? Essential for Women 18 Plus was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in 12 weeks. Let me ask you, does your multivitamin offer transparent, detailed information about nutrient sourcing? That's my favorite part of Ritual. I feel so confident in Ritual multivitamins, Ricky and I are both using them, as well as our son. It's just a part of our daily routine. Trust in this science-backed formula. Right now, Ritual is offering our listeners 10% off your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash crime salad and turn healthy habits into a ritual. That's 10% off at ritual.com slash crime salad. Investigators on the case started looking at family members right away as potential suspects. Ryan Jabbly was cleared quickly, mostly because the police had witnessed in person how devastated and shocked he was upon seeing his parents' bodies. Ryan also passed a polygraph test. The police first directed their attention to Ron Sr.'s brother, Roger, as he had a criminal history. But he had an airtight alibi, passed a polygraph test, and was visibly, deeply upset when he found out the horrible news about his brother. Police also considered the possibility that the Jabalese were involved with the mob or other shady dealings. They even looked into unpaid debts or relationships with loan sharks, but found nothing of the sort upon investigating. The authorities were stumped, especially since not only could they not find a murder weapon, they couldn't even find a single bit of physical evidence or DNA evidence that would lead them to the culprit. Investigators did notice a partial footprint when dusting for fingerprints, but because the killer used the mop and bucket in the garage to wash away any incriminating evidence, the police had almost nothing to go on, except for one thing. Despite the very thorough cleanup job, there was something helpful left at the scene of the crime. Christine's slippers and a half-eaten cookie were left at the bottom of the steps leading from the house into the garage. Investigators believe that this can actually help construct a narrative about what went on that night. More specifically, these bits of evidence suggest a casual walk on the scene, as investigators put it. Meaning, Christine came into the garage in her slippers while eating a cookie and doesn't realize anything is wrong until she gets to the bottom of the steps. And that's when she jumped out of her slippers and dropped her cookie. It also demonstrates the high likelihood that the Jabalese knew their killer because if Ronald was having some sort of altercation with the intruder, her behavior at the scene would have been a lot different. But investigators keep going back to that message, the most bewildering clue of all the indecipherable message written in blood by one of the victims thought to have been Christine. What was she trying to say? The authorities on the case reached out to the public to see if anyone, anywhere, could see something maybe that they couldn't see. We mentioned earlier what some of the common theories were on internet message boards at the time. It seemed like everyone had their own interpretation, including Detective Stevens. His interpretation is that the victim wrote an S and then started over for some reason by writing the S again, and then a lowercase letter O, followed by a partially washed away unknown letter, and then a lowercase J and a lowercase R. Using that information, Detective Stevens said that he believes the partially washed away letter could be an N, in that the message stated, Son Junior. Theorizing the killer was the Jabbily's eldest son, Ron Junior. But with so much of the message washed away, he really couldn't say for certain. The possible Son Junior in blood was not what made Detective Stevens set his eyes on Ron Junior as his prime suspect. It was Ron Jr.'s own suspicious behavior and actions the day after the murder that drew the attention of authorities like Detective Stevens. Now, we know people respond to trauma in different ways, but it is difficult to justify Ron Jr.'s actions after his brother Ryan notified him of their parents' death. Not only did he not drop everything to go check on his parents like his brother did, he didn't even stop working at all. He didn't even tell anyone, including his own sister who was at work with him, that his parents had been murdered. Ron Jr. also didn't even tell his wife and carried on like nothing happened until 3.30 p.m. when he closed the store informed everyone and left with his brother-in-law, Richard Zeiler, who routinely carpooled with Ron Jr. to work. Okay, so put yourself in Ron Jr's shoes. You just found out your parents died. But not only that, severely beaten and stabbed multiple times. And police are at the house. Your brother is on the phone devastated. Maybe this was a form of shock or fear. I mean, I've never been in this situation to even know how I would react. But you would think that Ron Jr. would drive straight to his parents' house right after leaving the store, right? Instead, he and his brother-in-law, Richard Zeiler, went to a chicken shack, which was not part of their usual routine at Ron Jr.'s request. After Ron Jr. got his food, he drove to a house that he was remodeling and asked Richard to wait in the car. It wasn't until 5 p.m., a full eight hours after the Jabalis were found, that Ron Jr. went to the crime scene to meet with the detectives. Eight hours. And just to remind you, he closed the meat shop at 3.30. Was he trying to buy time, maybe collect his thoughts? Hello, your parents have just been murdered. According to detectives, Ron didn't even ask any questions about the investigation and was not anxious at all. He was very calm, a stark contrast to how they would seen other family members react. When they confronted him about why he needed to stop by the house that he had been remodeling, Ron Jr. admitted it was to hide the Vicodin he had on him before meeting the police. But why was this such a necessary thing to do? ...to the
1: police station or checking on his wife and kids. Ron admits he went somewhere else to hide his Vicodin. I stopped at, um... I have the house. I have vaccines in my pocket. They didn't want us to go the police station when he on me. So I left them there and to the police station. Also Tuesday, a former neighbor of the
0: Jabalese... Investigators wondered if he was that afraid of being caught, why didn't he just throw them out the window or leave them at work for the time being? They suspected that it could have been to hide bloody clothes or the murder weapon, especially because he insisted that his brother-in-law wait in the car. But without evidence, they couldn't say for sure. Now, it wasn't just Ron's demeanor and odd behavior that made him the number one suspect. It was something he himself had said that alerted investigators. During an interview with the police, Ron Jr. questioned out loud whether or not he could have done this while sleepwalking. When he said this, I'm sure investigators were sitting on the edge of their seats. Was this a slight confession? This set off alarm bells with Detective Stevens, who believed he was trying to set up an excuse early on in the investigation because he didn't know what the police would find. What's more, two of Ron Jr.'s uncles testified in court that he had questioned whether or not he could have killed his parents and not remembered. Ron Jr. said to both of his uncles on separate occasions the phrase, maybe I did it, I don't know. Detectives brought this up during his interrogation. What were
1: you thinking at that time? Do you recall kind of what your thought process was when you, when you said that to your Uncle Joe? Mm-hmm. I'm just what I am telling you, right? had a lot of guilt inside of you me know. Up, maybe I went to work woke up, drove over there, did this and drove back home. This is just me driving myself crazy inside the topic.
0: Ron Jr. did make several wild and incriminating statements to relatives and police, but he also made just as many, if not more, statements proclaiming his innocence and insisted there was no way he could have done something so terrible, that they were just thoughts born out of guilt. While that may be true, it doesn't explain why he couldn't clear himself. Ron Jr. couldn't pass any of the three polygraph tests he took. And although this doesn't definitely prove he is guilty, it certainly doesn't make him look innocent either. He also wasn't able to look his father's best friend and neighbor, Dale, in the eye and say he didn't kill his parents, which is remarkably hard to justify. Now, despite all of this, the police still didn't have any physical evidence linking Ron Jr. to the crime scene, including a murder weapon. Now, we mentioned Dale. Dale was the neighbor and best friend of Ron Sr., He was actually with the Jabalese the night of the murder, and he spent the evening in the garage working on cars, as they often did. Dale and Ron Sr. spent a lot of time in that garage together and had grown very close. Dale had even fashioned a doorstop for their garage that they used to keep a pesky interior door from opening on its own. It was a five-foot steel pole with a U-shape at the top that was always kept in the same place when not in use. Dale was very distraught and spent a lot of time with police trying to help them in any way he could. He spent hours with Detective Stevens, poring over photos and videos of the crime scene, the garage that he had spent countless hours in and knew inside and out, trying to figure out what the murder weapon could have been. And then it finally clicked. The door stopped. He was positive he had seen it in its usual place before he went home for the night, before the murder took place. But it was nowhere to be found in the crime scene photos. Now, thanks to Dale, investigators finally felt like they knew what the murder weapon used to bludgeon the Jablies was. But they still didn't know where it or the kitchen knives taken from the kitchen ended up. Without any physical evidence, getting this case to trial would be difficult. After three years of investigation, prosecutors brought the case before a grand jury, hoping to get Ron Jr. indicted, even without hard evidence. It's worth noting that bringing a case to a grand jury in Macomb County is rare, especially because it was such a thin case that had gone cold. It took the prosecution three days of presenting their testimony, but the grand jury reached a unanimous decision. Ron Jabley Jr. would be tried for the murder of his parents, Ron and Christine (music) Jabley. On October 14th, 2010, Four years and eight days after the brutal murder of Ron and Christine Javalee, their eldest son, Ron Jr., was officially on trial for first-degree murder. Without physical evidence linking Ron Jr. to his parents' murder, the prosecution focused on using Ron's own words against him. Interrogation tapes were played in court of Ron speculating whether or not he could have done this and not remembered. The prosecution presented this as an admission of guilt. Steve Kaplan, the prosecutor, insisted that an innocent man doesn't ask these sort of questions, especially out loud to multiple people. Like Detective Stevens, Kaplan alleged that Ron Jr. must have been setting up an excuse in case police found evidence against him. Now here's how investigators believe the murder went down. Ron Jr. confronted his father in the garage about something like money issues, they got into a fight and Ron Jr. picked up the steel doorstop and hit his father over the head. Christine heard them arguing and came into the garage to see what was going on. When she got to the bottom step, she realized Ron Jr. had attacked her husband and was also hit over the head. Ron Jr. then went inside, got two knives off the kitchen counter and used those to stab his parents repeatedly and slash their throats. According to the prosecution, they alleged that the murder took place around 8.15. They believe that Ron Jr. left afterward and went to the house he was remodeling to stash bloody clothes and murder weapons before heading home at 8.30 or 8.45, putting his arrival time at 9 p.m. Ron Jr. denied these accusations and repeatedly told police he was never at his parents' house that night. David Klatt was another neighbor that used to live across the street from the Jabalese. He testified in court about what he saw the night of the murder. He stated that he saw that the lights in the Jabali house were turned back on around 11 p.m. and then off again around 1.30 a.m., which, according to the prosecution, implies that the killer returned to the scene of the crime, presumably to dispose of any incriminating evidence. David also said he saw what looked like a black SUV pulling out of the driveway with its lights off, but admits that he isn't positive about the color of the car or the details because of how dark it was outside. Ron Jr. drove a light-colored Silverado truck. And while that doesn't match the description, it doesn't necessarily lit him off the hook either, as he could have been driving a different car that night. During the entirety of the trial, Ron Jr. remained calm and emotionless, even when presented with the gruesome and graphic photos and videos of his parents' mutilated dead bodies. This did not sit well with a lot of people, especially Detective Stevens, who had this to say. My certainty that we had the right guy is when we showed the bodies of his beaten parents laying on the concrete of that garage floor, and he looks and he never bats an eye never sheds a tear, never changes the color of his face. Ron Jr. was known to be a mild-mannered, even-tempered guy, so grandiose displays of emotion weren't exactly common. People considered him to be laid back, and the defense used this in their favor. How could such an even-keeled guy slaughter his own parents? But Detective Stevens did not see him that way. He saw him as a man ready to explode with molten anger, simmering below the surface. He saw him as a man capable of murder. He saw this anger for himself during an interrogation he conducted, but because it wasn't recorded, he wasn't able to prove this to anyone else. Ron's anger issues came up in court when his uncle Joe confirmed that Ron Jr. had threatened him over the phone about the conversation they had, in which Ron speculated if he could have killed his parents and not remembered. Joe testified that Ron Jr. told him that he didn't trust him, that people would pay for this, and he'd take them down with him. Joe felt this threat warranted police protection at the time. The defense did their best to downplay the phone call, but would that be enough? While the prosecution spent a lot of time using Ron Jr.'s own incriminating words against him, the defense argued that he has denied killing his parents abundantly more than he has questioned it. Although that's a fair rebuttal, it was really the lack of any physical evidence or specific motive that the defense used to their advantage. There was some talk about money troubles and Ron's Vicodin addiction, but no solid arguments were made, so Ron Jr.'s motive remained undetermined. The murder weapons were never found, and there was still zero evidence linking Ron Jr. to the scene of the crime. You just can't convict someone based on a hunch. The defense also argued that an inexperienced killer wouldn't know how to meticulously remove every bit of evidence from the scene of the crime, but it's difficult to ascertain what an individual does or doesn't know how to do. Now, perhaps the most crucial testimony was that of the defendant's wife, Deborah Jabley, who served as her husband's alibi. She testified that her husband came home around 8.30 p.m. and did not leave again until the morning. She told the court that she knew Ron came home about 8.30 p.m. because this is also the same time when Nicole came by to drop off the kids. She also told the court that they have a security system in their bedroom that beeps when the bedroom door is opened, and that she never heard it beep that night. Here's what else Deborah had to say on the stand.
1: Ron Jabali looked on as his wife of 20 years took the stand this afternoon in his defense. Jabali's attorney asked Deborah Jabali if Ron left the house the night of the murders. Did your husband get up? No. You were laying in bed next to him? Yeah. 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 Were you laying in bed next to him? Yes. Did he get up? No. Did he go to the bathroom? No. What time do you think you fell asleep that night? Um, you know. Sometime after 11.30, I would say. Do you know after that whether or not your husband got up at night? Um, it was very common for him to get up, get something to drink, sometimes even eat something. And do you know if he did that that night? Are you the kind of person that wakes up during the night when their husband wakes up or someone else gets up? Not always. Not always, okay. So you don't know? No. Ron has repeatedly told police he wondered whether he killed his parents during a sleepwalking episode. Jabali's wife was asked by his attorney whether he's ever had an issue with blacking out in the past.
0: You've slept in the same bed with your husband for how many years? Mm, 19. 20. (laughs) Is he a sleepwalker? No. Deborah's testimony was certainly helpful in exonerating Ron Jr., but it was really the lack of physical evidence and absence of a motive that proved to be most important to the jury. At the beginning of the deliberation, the jury was split exactly down the middle. What was expected to take hours and hours only took the jury a single hour. The jurors emerged with their unanimous verdict. Ron
1: Jabley took a breath before his fate was announced.
0: People of the state of Michigan, plaintiff versus Ronald Frederick Jabley. For count one regarding Christine Jabley, we find the defendant not guilty.
1: For count two regarding the Ronald Jabley Sr.,
0: we find the defendant not guilty. Sighs of relief and tears of joy abound as Ron Jr. displays emotion for the first time in that courtroom. He looks physically relieved as his attorneys and family embrace him. His family maintains their unwavering stance that Ron Jr. is an innocent man and were greatly relieved that they could finally start to heal and put this all behind them. Detective Stevens was still not convinced. He insisted that he saw a side of Ron Jr., that same angry side of him that his Uncle Joe saw, that the jury wasn't able to see. He is certain that Ron Jabbily Jr. is not only capable of killing, but that he was the one that killed his parents. In October of 2012, Ron Jr. put out a $10,000 reward for anyone with information that would bring his parents' killer to justice. As of today, no one has been convicted. The case has gone cold, and the question still remains. Who killed the Jabalis? This completes this week's episode. Thank you all so much for listening. We will be with you next week.
1: Crime Salad is a weird salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect.